Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. Welcome to our Torah study for this Sabbath. We are in the book of Exodus. We're at chapter 25. And our Torah portion entitled this week is called Teruma. Teruma means contribution. It comes from verse 2. It says, tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. What we're about to begin, and for the next 15 chapters of the book of Exodus, from here on out through Exodus, it's all going to be about um, the children of Israel under the instruction of Moses following the pattern of God to build the tabernacle. To build the tabernacle and to build the priestly garments and to dedicate uh, the tabernacle and whereas God would dwell with the people in the wilderness while they were traveling to the promised land. And uh, it was going to be more than just the pillar by cloud, uh, the fire by night. Uh, he said, let's build a tabernacle for me, a tent for me, a dwelling place. And there's a very specific pattern that goes into uh, this construction. We are told that this pattern is like that, the throne of God in heaven. And oh, by the way, as a result of this pattern being given to us, this is the pattern that was also used in the temple in Jerusalem. It will be arrayed with furnishings and so forth the same way uh, as was done in this tabernacle. Very, very important um, teachings and principles are given here. Moses is going to give us a lot of detail to this. And it has to do because of this teruma. This teruma is this contribution. And I want, I want to go ahead and just read further what it says. Verse 2, from every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. And this is the contribution of which you are to raise from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, Ram skins dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. So the call goes out, okay, we need these following items. We need these items to be able to construct the tabernacle and to build the things that we need for the priests, uh, for the priestly garments. Uh, I, before I go any further, we've got to do a little more of a spin on this word teruma. Teruma, which means contribution. There's another word which is very, very close in the pronunciation of this word. It's terua. Terua versus teruma. Very, very slight difference. Terua is a trumpet. A trumpet blast. There's a place when uh, Yeshua was with the disciples and they were observing offerings being brought in by the people and being donated in the, the temple treasuries. And, he, and, and there are certain persons, I don't know if you've ever seen this before, most people have, where there might be somebody who comes in and they kind of draw attention to themselves and make kind of a big deal about them making the offering that they made. In fact, in uh, big offerings that are done with big organizations, they make a big deal out of they host a dinner and they honor people for making big contributions. The news media, if, you, if somebody donates a million dollars to an organization, it, it's, it's news. You know, oh, so-and-so, he, he gave a, gave a million dollars uh, to this organization to help these people. I don't care how honorable it is. I don't care how wonderful the cause is. Uh, Yeshua taught us that when you go to make a teruma, you're not supposed to sound the teruah. When you go to make a contribution, don't sound a trumpet about it. And it it's, comes from this word. It's, it's a key off of this word about don't make a big deal out of it. One of the things uh, I will just share with you personally, I think one of the best ways there is for you to give, particularly if you want to give a, a gift to other brethren or whatever, is do it quietly. 
Don't make a big deal out of it. Um, and in fact, sometimes it's even better to make it anonymously. Make it in such a way as they don't know where it came from. Let me tell you what's the value of that. The person who then receives the gift, the only person they can think of to thank is God. So they thank God for the gift. Well, here you are, you helped out your brethren, and you brought honor to the Lord. That's even more than you just made a gift and bring honor to yourself. And by the way, the Lord pays attention to that stuff. There's a whole series of other instructions based on these verses in the New Testament that you should not give out of necessity, that you should give with joy, that you should give, in a, it says actually in a hilarious way, in a joyful, let's have fun way kind of thing of giving for it. Um, not to bring uh, ac uh, good thoughts on me, I'll just tell you some life experiences. I'll never forget, uh, back many years ago when I was on a business trip, I was staying at this hotel and they had this breakfast buffet. And uh, there was a couple of guys I was with on the business trip. And I went down there to have some breakfast and they have this breakfast buffet and the waitress comes over and gives you your cup of coffee and you say, oh, I want the buffet. And then you go up and get a plate and get your breakfast. Well, the table where I was seated at was near the waitress station. In fact, it was on the back side. And there was a partition there, but it was close enough that I could hear any conversation that the wait staff was making with one another. And this one young lady, young waitress, is talking to an older waitress, waitress who, by the way, is my waitress, is complaining because she got a $5 tip from a customer. And she's complaining that all she did was serve him coffee. You know, the guy ate the buffet, but it gave her a $5 tip. And uh, that obviously she was flirting. She was doing, you know, something to entice the man to give her a bigger tip, blah, blah, treating him nice, you know, whatever. And the older lady, the wait, my waitress, is counseling this young lady and says, look, we're all here working to make a living. If she's able to get a good tip because she does good service to a customer, don't begrudge that. That's what we're all attempting to do. We're all here trying to make a living. So stop complaining about her and go out and treat customers better. Pretty good counsel. You know, give it to the wait staff. Um, when I heard this, I thought about how this older woman had given this good counsel to the younger woman. And I got this idea. My other two buddies, they showed up. So we're all eating the buffet. I told them about the story and I said, you know what would be cool? What would be really fun? I said, let's leave the old gal, each one of us leave her five bucks. And we did. We left her five, each one of us left her five dollars. And by the way, I don't think the buffet was much over six dollars in that day. So this was like a pretty good sized tip for what we were, service we were getting. Now I didn't stick around to see what the end result was, but in my mind, I'll tell you what I came away with was, that's an example of giving hilariously. An example of doing something out of joy and fun you know, for the benefit of another person. That's a true, valid gift. That's the kind of gift that's talked about here, the kind of contribution that the Lord is talking about here, one that comes from the heart. And as let me repeat verse 2 to you. Draw up a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him to you shall raise my contribution. This is not required. There's a lot of times you can make an offering. It's not required of you. Do it from the heart. That's the best gift. One of the other principles that I teach is the person who determines the value of the gift is not the person who receives it. It's the person who gives it. Now, a lot of people, when they get a gift, that's desperately what they need, and they're very thankful and they, they say, I couldn't have operated without it, and thank you so much, and so forth. But that's not the value of the gift. The value of the gift is determined by the person who gave it to help with them. The, uh, 
And I want you to take that into account because the value of the gift of the Messiah that's been given to us to receive salvation, who determines the value of that? You? No. You're the recipient of it. You should be thankful for it. But I have news for you. Our Heavenly Father gave that gift. He's the one that determines the value of the gift. And by the way, the gift that you have received, the real value that came from our Heavenly Father, priceless. You and I really received an indescribable, priceless gift in the life of the Messiah for us. And that's the way we should regard it. From that, we should learn to give the way He gives. So when it says about giving from the heart, you and I, when we make a gift, it needs to come from us, truly come from us, the value that comes from us. There's a, I want to give one more little cute story about this that I just speaks to me on what this is about. So you got a little kid outside. He's got a mom and a dad. And he finds these two sticks in the gutter. And he takes them into the garage and he finds a hammer and a nail. And he nails these two sticks together. And then he carries it into the house and he says to his mom, he says, Mom, look what I made for you. Now what does mom do? Oh, she gets down on her knee, she loves the kid, hugs the kid, because she sees the value of the gift that was from her son. You know, so now you take the same gift, you go into the father in the living room, and you say, Hey, dad, look what I made for you. Dad immediately goes, What are these two sticks out of the gutter? Get this thing out of the house, it's filthy. Same thing can be viewed in different ways. Um, and I want you to know that our Heavenly Father, the gifts that we give, He sees the true value of them, He sees your heart. He knows the value you put in, whether it's a small thing by the world standards or a great thing by the world standards. He's the one who truly sees what's the value of the gift. He's calling for the gifts to come forth so they might construct uh, the tabernacle that will go into it. Now, before I go further, we got to look at what it describes here as one of the items that's in the contribution. He specifically, as I read to you, he said, in verse 5, he said, ram's skins dyed red, porpoise skins, and acacia wood. Porpoise. Let's see, that's a big fish. Um, and yes, those are in the Red Sea area. They would have had access to them. But they're smooth skin. They don't have scales. And they're not kosher. Nobody eats porpoise fish. Nobody. Um, and why would God use something that's classified as unclean to be part of the elements that he would have here? We're really not sure if it really was a porpoise skin, but it was some kind of smooth skin. Um, for it, translators use porpoise uh, for a description, try, first of all, trying to explain the nature of the skin. We don't know for sure that it was the skin of a porpoise fish. We do know that it was a skin like a porpoise fish, but where it originated from, we're not quite sure uh, where exactly it came from. Um, and by the way, interestingly enough, these porpoise skins, what, where were they used in the tabernacle? They weren't part of the roof. They weren't inside the tabernacle. They served a very interesting purpose. When the tabernacle was being carried around, out of the tabernacle, there was a covering over it. We believe these were the coverings for uh, the uh, items that were inside the tabernacle, and namely the Ark of the Covenant was, had a covering that probably was from these skins, which makes it even more significant in terms of its purpose and importance. All right, we go down here further, and he's going to be giving instructions on all of the parts that's going to uh, be used in this thing. But then he's going to shift gears and first of all, specifically talk about three particular pieces of furniture. 
literally is going to build the tabernacle from the inside out. And so the first item that he's going to give instructions on is about the Ark of the Covenant, the box, the, the wooden box that's lined with gold inside and outside that holds the two tablets. And it's this has the mercy seat on top with the cherubim and all that. And this is carried around by the priests and with the porpoise skins over the top. This piece of furniture, which is going to sit in the Holy of Holies, is the first item that's going to be described. The second item that's going to be described, this is later on at verse 23, is the table of showbread. Again, it will be made out of acacia wood. It will be covered with gold. And this is the, the table that will hold um, the bread that is in the tabernacle. The third item is the lampstand or the menorah. That's explained to us in verse 31 and how the menorah is to be made. Now that one is made out of pure gold. Doesn't have any acacia wood in it. It is pure gold. And he proceeds to describe it as being the center thing with three pear branches so that you have seven elements uh, to the menorah. And in, in verse 40, uh, he says, And see that you make them after the pattern for them which was shown to you on the mountain. If you go back and to that particular thing, what did God, how did God show him what these furniture was supposed to look like? How was it to be displayed? It says that God used pure fire. In other words, there was fire, and it formed the shape of an ark, and everything that was in it, it was made out of fire. Literally, it was made out of the him. He shaped himself that way. Now, that's very significant. These three items, this is the only three items that are done that way. All the others, we have different explanations about how they'd be made and so forth. Altars, golden altars. Uh, you know, the rest of the tabernacle. He wasn't shown the pattern that way. These three items were shown in this particular way and in this manner. And there's a lot of detail that's given here concerning these three pieces of furniture. So let me orient you in the tabernacle where they're going to be placed. And later on, we're going to learn more about um, that and how that all takes shape. In the Holy Holies, the inner sanctum, of the tabernacle is going to be the Ark of the Covenant. There's then going to be a veil that's going to separate that space from the next space in the sanctuary, which, by the way, in the tabernacle is called the holy place. Holy of holies, holy place. A veil separates the two. Outside of the veil, as you're walking in, to the right is going to be this table of showbread. To your left is going to be the menorah, the lamp, the seven candelabrum lamp. Directly in front of the veil in the midst of those three things is going to become a golden altar, a small golden altar, which is where they burn the incense before the Lord on. Now, it doesn't mention the golden altar when it's describing these key furniture. But this one golden altar sits in the middle of these three pieces of furniture. And it's going to be described to us last. And the way the furnishings are being described to us, the sequence of being, carries part of the instruction and the message. Namely, let's go specifically to three pieces of furniture. Each one is treated in a similar fashion. Each one is described in detail. Each one is, is set in their various places. And there's a different function and responsibility for each one. Yet, at the same time, God laid out the pattern of them exactly in the same way. And then when Moses would come in before the veil, he's literally standing in the center of a triangle of these three things. And later on, when we find out about the golden altar of incense and the fragrance of the incense is like the prayers of the saints, when a person prays to God and goes before the Lord, he doesn't quite realize it, but in the tabernacle that's in here, 
in his heart where the Lord dwells, the temple of the Lord is here. He walks into the center of these three pieces. He's in the center of those three pieces. Now there's a veil separating him from the ark, but the others are very visible. So what are we to conclude from this? Well, the stage is being set, and we'll see throughout Scripture that we'll follow after this. God is revealing himself to it as to what it's like to come into the presence of God. And God has three parts to him. There's the Father, who's the ultimate judge. There is the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit. So what we have shown to us is our Heavenly Father in the form of the Ark of the Covenant. Those are where the laws come forth from. There's where the mercy seat is at. He's the ultimate judge. And to our right is the table of showbread. Now, showbread has a very specific uh, meaning to it. There's loaves for each of the tribes of Israel. And the way the loaves were made, this is very fascinating, the way the loaves were made, they were made in such a way that it made the silhouette of a face. In other words, the shape of the loaf came down with the nose and the mouth and the chin. They actually formed the loaves to look like a face. And they made 12 of these, one for each of the tribes of Israel, and they would stack them on the array for it. And this was the bread that was stationed there and that the priests would eat uh, at the end of the week when they put new bread up on there. And the bread was there for a week. Uh, on that. To the left now, and by the way, since we're talking about this, how does that relate to the Messiah? Well, does not the scripture say that the Messiah is the true bread from heaven? The Messiah is equated to the bread man of life, the, the redemption story of Joseph that we talked about. It, it ties into this is the stuff you need on a daily basis. This is the relationship you need to walk with the Lord, the Messiah. In particular, it's like daily bread. Then to the left was the menorah, the oil for the lamps would produce light and the branches. The seven branches relate to us as the seven spirits of God. And by the way, the Holy Spirit has all of these different spirits uh, connected with it. We read that in Isaiah chapter 11 the seven spirits. One of the things that we're told about the Messiah, the reason why he is above all other kings, is because he has all seven spirits in him. Whereas before, one of the things that we have learned is different men at very, very different times in biblical history have had some of these spirits, but not all of them. Let me give you a case in point. The seven spirits, if you start from the right and you count to the left according to Isaiah 11 in there, is the first thing is that we have the spirit of the uh, wisdom. Then we have the spirit of knowledge. We have the spirit of strength. We have the spirit of, of um, um, I think, might. And then we have the spirit of, of um, understanding. And finally, we have the spirit of uh, the fear of the Lord. The branches work together. There's three sets of branches. And this is what we discovered. A wise man has receives the spirit of wisdom and the fear of the Lord. And if you remember from the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They're connected. A man of understanding, now that's a slightly different kind of man spiritually, has the spirit of knowledge and of understanding. He's called the spirit, the man of understanding. A king, uh, here's the one I was forgetting, the king has the spirit of strength and counsel. Counsel was the other one I should have said. So th those two. The reason why Solomon was such an interesting king for us is even though he had the spirits of strength and counsel, he asked for the spirit of wisdom additionally. So he received an additional spirit, and that's what made Solomon such an interesting king for us uh, in the course of that. God, in operating with men and anointing people to do his work, anoints them with part of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon the man to guide him. And if he's a man of understanding, he gets those two spirits. A wise man gets those. The king gets his particular ones as well. The Messiah 
has all seven. They provide illumination and light so that you can see things. The fuel we use for anointing. The anointing comes from the Holy Spirit. When the uh, Father anointed the Messiah, made him, and that's what Messiah means, the anointed one, it was the Holy Spirit, oil from the Holy Spirit that anointed him. Now, here's the point I want to get to you about this orientation here, is that when you walk in to pray, and you walk into the center of the tabernacle of your heart, this tabernacle was constructed here after the same pattern, your heavenly Father looks at you and he sees to your left the Messiah standing as an advocate for you. He sees to your, to your left, his right, he sees the Holy Spirit helping you and confirming you. So you stand there with the evidence of two or three in all cases. Now let's take it from the Messiah's point of view. How does he see you? To the left of you, he sees the Holy Spirit. To the right, he sees the Father. From the Holy Spirit's standpoint, how does he see you? He sees to the left of you, the Father, and to the right of you, the, the Messiah. You, when you walk in and you begin to pray to God in this tabernacle, you are literally in the very midst of God. God has made a way for you to come in and to be literally in the most intimate position that you can possibly be, inside the circle of where God is at. You are not out with men. You get to have that particular place. Only you get to go there. Only one priest was permitted to go up and put incense on the golden altar, which was in the center. Only one had to be determined by lots. It wasn't a job for everybody. Every day, only one was permitted to do it. And just like us, only us can go into this tabernacle, into that place, to be in the midst uh, with the Lord there. Now, there's a lot more detail about the construction of it. Um, uh, there's a lot of discussion about exactly where's the seat, um, how does that really work, the seat for God on the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, there are, there's a tremendous amount of speculation out there with regard to people claiming they know where the Ark of the Covenant is at. Uh, there's one theory that's down in Ethiopia in this one particular building. There's another theory, no, it's buried in the ground um, at uh, Jeremiah's Grotto, which is near the Arab bus station in Jerusalem, near the Garden Tomb. Uh, which is on the north side of the temple area. And there is a theory that it's literally in the temple mount underneath, um, in which it was seen by Rabbi Gorin, Rabbi Gorin and another rabbi when uh, Israel captured the temple mount and Jerusalem in 67. And there's still yet another story about uh, Jeremiah taking the temple treasuries in his day and taking them out to someplace like Qumran area and having them buried in, and put in special chambers there. And there's a very famous um, uh, thing called the Copper Scroll. And the Copper Scroll is a sheet of copper that has been imprinted, you know, the letters in metal, which is describing all the temple treasuries uh, that were stored in various places when Jeremiah and several priests brought the stuff out. So you have all these different theories about exactly where in the world is the Ark of the Covenant. And one of the things that goes into this is uh, particularly the description that people claim for the Ark of the Covenant. Now, most of you have seen various pictures of what they think the Ark of the Covenant used to look like. Uh, probably the most common picture we have is the one that's put out by the Temple Institute. They show this box with a lid and they show these two um, cherubim angels with their wings open and their wings are fanned out, you know, over the top. The two of them are facing each other. Um, if you saw the movie The Raiders of the Lost Ark, why well, you saw these two things with their sticking straight at each other, these wings. Um, but they all get it wrong. 
And I, this is even for my brethren at the Temple Institute. Let me take you to the a key verse which describes how these angels were reigned on the mercy seat. Chapter 25, and in verse 17, it says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat, and make one cherub at the end and one cherub at the other end, and you shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat as it in the two ends. And the cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another, the face of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. All right. The key language here, it says, they shall have wings spread upward. And then it says, covering the mercy seat with their wings. By the way, let me go ahead and just review this for you. Cherubim have four wings. Not two wings. They have four wings. And the language here says, that the cherubim are to have two wings that are raised upward and two wings covering. So that if you're looking at the ark with the two cherubim looking at each other, the shape you see of the cherubim wings is you see a set of wings that's covering over the seat and then you see a set of wings that's setting up. That area in the wings of the cherubim is actually where God sits. When you go in before, he doesn't sit down on the, the lid of the box. He sits in the wings of the cherubim. That's the mercy seat. In the wings of angels is where the mercy seat is at. Almost all of the different quote theories and eyewitness testimony and so forth that we've had, they never describe the ark with four, the cherubim with four wings. They make this fundamental mistake. I remember uh, there was a particular uh, fellow out many years ago. He's gone to be with the Lord now. But he claimed that he had found uh, the Ark of the Covenant um, in Jeremiah's grotto there in Jerusalem um, near the Arab bus station north of the Temple Mount in a cave. And when he was asked, well, what did you see? He said, well, I saw uh, the cherubim. I saw the way they spread their wings. He said, well, how, how did they do it? And he said, well, they were at the two ends, and they had one wing that went this way and one wing that, that went that way. And on the other side, it was the opposite of that. So it looked like a throne chair where God would sit on the mercy seat and the wings, he would sit around, the wings would be around him like a Western chair. And I knew the guy directly, and I said, you never saw it. He said, well, how can you say that? I said, it doesn't line up with the way Moses was told to make it. Your description is completely different than his. And I, I take note of that because I want to draw you back to when it comes to things of, that are in the Torah, there's a lot of people that have ideas about what the Torah says, but they haven't really read specifically what it says. This is one of those examples. Because we see the Ark of the Covenant, we see the uh, cherubim wings in a whole variety of different displays, movies, stories, blah, 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 pictures, and so forth. And I would caution you, while they're making a, a valiant effort to try to get you to relate to the item, we need to go back to the original instruction and see what it really says about it. I do believe that when the Ark of the Covenant is come forth, you're going to see the cherubim with wings upward and wings covering. And you're going to see the cherubim have four wings. Seraphim have six. Other angels have two or none. There's lots of angels that don't have wings at all. But because of the fascination of wings, uh, we have some of these different stories that have come out about it. So let me go down uh, a little bit further for you. Let's, in chapter 26, we see what I call the attaching parts of the tabernacle. The first attaching parts, in other words, the planks, the boards, and the sockets, and the things that fit it together, the first one elements of these 
are they're made for the sanctuary and the two chambers. They make the, the, the basic box of the tabernacle, the sanctuary, and they describe all the stuff that goes into it. And about how each of these boards that were standing upright were 10 cubits in size. Think about that for a moment. 10 cubits. So you say, what would that have been? Well, that would have been a cubit is about 18 inches or one and a half feet. Uh, so um, 10 of those, it would have been 15 feet. So imagine a plank that goes up 15 feet. Sometimes the biggest boards you get out of the lumber yard are 16 footers. They use those for rafters and on the roof and so forth. So imagine the height of that up there being up 15 feet, and then gold laid on it, and it sits in specific sockets that hold it in place and attach it. So you walk in, and there's this gold-lined room, all gold. Would have been incredible, you know, to see this. Um, and later on, when the temple in Jerusalem was built, why the interior of the wall of the temple was gold-lined. It had gold as well on the overhead and down on the floor and on the walls. Pure gold, you know, the, where it was the temple where the Lord was at. We go a little bit further. Again, I want you to take note of the fact that the inner chambers were built first and called out. Then with the inner chambers built, the next item that he's going to be instructed to do is the veils. We have the chamber. Now we need the veils to separate. There's a veil that is between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. And then there's a veil at the entrance. Now, later on in the temple in Jerusalem, there's doors that are put there, and there's only one veil. But the veils are for the, to allow people ingress and egress into those chambers. And so the veils are then called up. Then in chapter 27, he's going to describe the making of the altar, not the golden altar, He's going to talk about the altar that sets outside the chamber where sacrifices can be brought, you know, for it. And finally, in our portion here, it's going to talk about the uh, curtains and the elements that made the perimeter of the whole courtyard. Now, there's a couple of things that are not mentioned in this particular portion that we know are part of what will be going on. One is the altar of incense that goes inside. The laver for washing is not mentioned in this portion. And the priestly garments and the work of the priests that are operating in the temple. All we have is the basic structure, the interior and the basic structure that goes with this. In our next portion, it's going to get into the detail of the priesthood and all of those elements that come together uh, for the rest of the um, tabernacle. Now, again, what we're really looking at is in this portion, it's really what, what we could call the blueprints. You know, the blueprints aren't the actual building. The blueprints are the whole plan for what's to take place, and it identifies all the parts and so forth. And so you're looking at the blueprint of the tabernacle in reading this portion. In other portions, we're going to see where it actually talks about they assembled it. They actually pulled the parts together. They talk about how they fashioned, craftsmen fashioned the parts uh, to put them together. But this first portion, of the thing I want you to note about this is it's laying out the blueprint for what God is going to be doing and so forth. Now, having said that, there's a very important Torah concept, a very important concept that's being expressed to us. When God goes to do something, he lays out a plan. He shares a blueprint. Let's talk about the subject of, for example, of um, the Messiah is going to come back and establish his kingdom. The Messiah's come. Do we have the evidence in the scriptures where God has laid out the blueprint of the details of how that's going to happen? And the answer is an emphatic yes. Not only do we have the prophets telling us all the bits and pieces and how this is going to come together and that's going to come together, but we have one book at the end of the Bible 
called the Book of Revelation, and I will tell you what that thing is. It's a blueprint for explaining the final three and a half years leading to the coming of the Lord. It's not the actual thing, but it's a blueprint telling us what we will see. And there are things that we will see that go even beyond what the book says when it begins to take shape and so forth, but it's the blueprint. Now, there's one experience where you've got the blueprints in front of you and you look down and you're imagining what those things will look at. And you realize on a blueprint, you're kind of looking at 2D, two-dimensional. But when you get to see the real thing, it goes into three dimensions. In other words, it really has shape. Like when I pointed out the boards, look how high they are. You'd have to lift your head up to see how high they are and, and the aura of where you'd be standing and so forth. There's a difference between knowing the blueprints and actually experiencing it when it takes place. But God is in the business of laying out the blueprints for his plans first. And a lot of this scripture is about that. Um, and in particular, the book of Revelation, if you want to break the code on the book of Revelation, it's a blueprint for explaining the great tribulation and how the Lord is going to usher in his kingdom, what the final generation is going to go through. Just as it would have been a different experience from the walk into the tabernacle after the thing was constructed, we're going to have a very interesting experience if we're at the end of the age and we're the final generation, when the great tribulation comes, of walking through that and seeing it in, a, in an even more full way than we could just looking at the um, book of Revelation and the blueprints. But the one thing that we're going to understand, just like the experience of being with the tabernacle, is that as you walk in, you know what the length is going to be. You know how wide it's going to be. You, you know what its real size is as, because you know the dimensions that come from the blueprint, that come from the words that we get here to build the tabernacle. The same thing is going to happen to people when we get into the Great Tribulation and we see what's taking place, we're going to have a sense of what are the real dimensions and the proportions of how everything is organized and so forth in God's plan for the end of the ages. And just like there's dimensions given here, how many cubits and so forth to do this, and just like he told Noah how many cubits the ark was supposed to be done before he built the ark, again, another blueprint for what God's doing, we have in the book of Revelation a whole set of dimensions and the prophets about the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation is to last for 1,290 days. Blessed is he who sees the 1,335th day. However, the two witnesses will be prophesying for 1,260 days. Those that flee from the land of Israel will be preserved for 1,260 days. The end of Messiah will be in control for 42 months. Then there's a dimension about the 2300 evenings and mornings. There's a tremendous number of dimensions. And where do you see dimensions? On the blueprints. You see the blueprints out there and it gives you the dimensions of that. And you know that dimensions aren't the real thing. They're just explaining to you what those things are. The book of Revelation is a set of blueprints that tells the final generation what God is getting ready to do and to construct at the end of the ages. And one of the things I've done in my own personal study, and I would encourage you um, with regard to the, the study of the tabernacle, is not only to view the wisdom of God about how he put this together, how he wanted to make a dwelling place amongst the people, but the impact that having done this had on the people and the children of Israel. And to understand that the work of the Messiah, part of his job as the son of David, the son of David is the one who constructs the, the temple, the son, the true son of David, Yeshua the Messiah, has constructed a temple in us. And for us to understand um, how the Lord works in our life and how we come into God's presence in our faith 
is that's the reason why we study the tabernacle. That's the reason why we want to understand the blueprints. We want to understand how God set this up so that we can operate in it incorrectly. Can you imagine the poor priest who um, is there doing the priestly duties and he never walks into the sanctuary of the temple? He runs around on the outside. He works with the laver. He works at the altar. He never goes inside. You know, he never does those priestly duties. And he has no experience with them. He has no experience coming before the veil. He has no experience with the showbread or with the light of the menorah. He, he, he doesn't know anything about those because he's not participating with them. The same thing happens to a believer in their faith. If you're walking out your faith, and you have no idea what a menorah is to you or how to trim the lamps or the table of showbread or the golden altar. You have no concept of what those are. How are you supposed to operate in this temple that the Messiah has constructed in you unless you know something about what that temple is about, unless you understand the blueprints of what the temple is? And I have seen many brethren disheartened and dissatisfied in the walk of their faith simply because they can't understand how God dwells inside of us and how that we can relate to God inside of us. I don't have any difficulty. I'm, I'm serious about this. I don't have any difficulty walking into the presence of the Lord or understanding that I'm in the presence of the Lord. I don't have to go someplace. He's right here. All I do is I picture in my mind, I walk right in to the sanctuary where the Lord is at. And I know where all the parts of God are at, and I know what the, they offer me and, and are for me. And, and the good thing is I walk into the center of them, and I'm accepted by God. At that moment while I'm standing there, do you know what the status that you have before God is when you're standing in His presence at that moment? You are considered blameless before God. Boy, I, I need that. I need to know that I can stand before the Lord and be blameless in this sight, that He's fully received me. He's not upbraiding me about something else. We, we took care of that out at the laver. We took care of that out at the altar. I have got the sacrifice for my sins. I've, I've cleaned myself up. I'm now walking into His presence, and I'm accepted by Him. By the way, one of the most wonderful things that it's in there, had you walked into a real tabernacle in those days, yes, you would have taken note of the gold. Yes, you would have taken note of the furnishings. But there's something that would have struck you even stronger. And that would have been the fragrance of the incense before the Lord. The sweetness of it. It's the same experience you had had you walked into the tabernacle courtyard. The first thing that would have really penetrated you is you would have smelled the fragrance of the burning fat on the altar and that incredibly pleasant, savory fragrance. I don't know about you, but I love to go to steakhouses. You know, Outback is one of my favorites. You're in the parking lot, and you catch a whiff of the, the exhaust that's coming off of their grills and fire pits where they're cooking steaks, and they're burning all that fat and burning all that meat you know, in there, and the fragrance hits you. I mean, my mouth starts watering all over the place, and I, my appetite scale goes right up to the top. I am ready to eat. You know, I catch a whiff of that. When you walk into the inner sanctuary and you catch a whiff, of the fragrance of the sweetness of the Lord, to entreat the Lord. The sensation of understanding what you're doing and how God is receiving you is crucial in the intimacy of your walk with God. It's very special. How do we get this? How do we learn about this? How do we step to that kind of an intimate level? Well, we walk into God's tabernacle. By the way, and here's my last point for this lesson, this garment here, this prayer shawl called the Talit, um, it's a tent. It's a tent. 
It's a covering of the Lord. Like so. When a man goes into this, it's like he's going into his personal tabernacle. When a man first puts this on, he covers himself completely to say the blessing of wearing the tabernacle. And it's just him and God. And it's symbolizing what God was trying to do by building the tabernacle. God wants to dwell with us and have an intimate relationship with us. We want an intimate relationship with us. You need to find out about the tabernacle and how the tabernacle was designed and how it was set up so that you and I could come into the very presence of God. And then you need to learn that since there's not one over there, what the purpose of this is and how this works. Because this is like your own personal version of the tent of the Lord, the tabernacle of the Lord. Um, and there's many teachings that go with each of the, this, this talit and many meetings that go with it that are about our faith, just as there were many symbols associated with the tabernacle about our faith. All right, well, that gets us started into uh, the instruction we're going to have about the tabernacle. And next week, we are going to be in Tetzaveh, which will be in chapter 27, beginning of verse 20. And it's going to talk more about the priesthood and talk about the garments associated with them. I think you'll find that to be very fascinating because it's kind of a lesson telling us the next time you see the Messiah, what he's going to look like. And so it'd be very interesting for you to be able to recognize him uh, based on this description here as well. Until then, Shabbat Shalom to all of you. Thank you for joining us. This broadcast has been made possible by the Lord and by the generous donations of brethren like you. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you, and shalom.